Our scripture this evening comes from Romans chapter 16, the very last chapter of the book of Romans. It's on page 1139 in the Bible. Romans 16, we'll read the entire chapter. There's a great deal of names in this chapter. So, Romans 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Cancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinitus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trifina and Trifosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogus, and Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sospater my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, 
according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Well, congregation, if you can leave this passage open, I would like to take you to a house in the city of Corinth this evening. And the the house is the house of Gaius, as you can read in verse 23 of our chapter here. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So Gaius was a man who must have been a man of some means. And he opened up his house, not only to Paul, but to a house church. There was a church that met in the house of Gaius. Gaius is a man mentioned in the, in the Corinth. You can find that when you read the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. But in this house, Paul had stopped and rested. And in this house, Paul is now moved to write to the church in Rome. Because Paul has a vision, congregation. Paul has a vision. And it is a a large vision. And if you're in Romans 16, I would just ask you to look in the previous chapter, in Romans 15 and verse 24. And just look at that first clause there. Whenever I go to Spain. Spain. Think of that congregation in a day where there's no automobiles, no Certainly no aircraft. Only the way you could get to Spain was over land or over sea. And Paul looks at Spain. He knows there's a Roman colony there. And he knows there's lost souls there. And so it burns in the heart of Paul. He can't leave them alone. And he makes plans to go to Spain. Now it's very likely that Paul never got to Spain. But it's in Paul's vision to get to Spain. Oh, you see what, what, a, what a heart this man had. You see it again in verse 28. He says, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. That's Romans 15 and verse 28. So Paul has this vision. And now in the house of Gaius, in Corinth, he sits down with Tertius. You see Tertius is mentioned in verse 22, Romans 16 and verse 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter? Tertius would have been Paul's secretary who would have done the actual writing of the letter. That was very common in those days. Uh, So Tertius would have been the scribe, the author. Not the author, the the writer of the letter. Paul would have been the author. And, And so Paul and Tertius now sit down in the house of Gaius. And can't you see them in your mind's eye as they sit in this room and they begin to pen the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world. And I don't know about you, congregation, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I could see them. I, I see Paul, Tertius. Now let's begin. Let's begin where we have to begin to talk about sin and guilt. In Romans 1, Paul and Tertius, they write, and the pen scratches over the papyrus sheet that Tertius would have been writing on. And he comes to Romans 2. Now we need to say something about the Jews. The Jews are in the same boat as the Gentiles. They're lost before God. 
And you see them then to chapter 3. Of course, they don't put chapters in there, right? Chapter 3, right? The wages of sin is death, Paul writes. Right? He writes, and now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the works of the law and everything else that he's written in chapter 3. And to chapter 4, he writes about Abraham. Chapter 5, remember we talked about Adam and Christ. I think we preached on that sometime. And to Romans 6, we're dead, in, we're dead to sin, Paul says. In Romans 7, we're dead to the law. And in Romans 8, the glorious doctrine of the Holy Spirit is laid out for us. And then Paul pauses. And ladies, you remember this from our Bible study last week, right? Romans 9, 10, and 11. Tertius, we need to say something about Israel. Tertius, write this. My heart's desire and prayer to God is for my people, that they would be saved. Right? And Paul even writes in the beginning of Romans 9, I could wish myself accursed, cut off from Christ, if my people, the Jews, could be saved. Right? And then he talks about God's election in Romans 9. In Romans 10, he talks about the Jews, how they made that dreadful choice. They went about trying to make their own righteousness, and they did not submit to receive the righteousness of God as a free gift. And then in Romans 11, Paul talks about the nation of the Jews. In Romans 12 and 13 and 14, I'm not going to go through the whole book, until finally Tertius lays down his pen. Oh, says Paul, we're not done yet. We have, to, we have to greet all the people that we know in the Roman church. And remember, congregation, that Paul, when he writes this letter, he has another goal in his mind than just to explain the gospel to the Roman church. Because Paul wants to go to Spain, but Paul needs a sending church. He needs a home base. He needs a base of operations. He needs a sending church. And Paul wants it to be the Roman church. All roads lead to Rome, right? We learned that in history class. All roads lead to Rome in the ancient world. So Rome would be a perfect place. And there's already a thriving church there. It would be wonderful if Paul could have this church be the church that would send him out, that would support him financially, that would support him in prayer, and support him in all the different ways that missionaries need to be supported. And so Paul wants to really establish a connection with the Roman church. And so we're not surprised then to read this long list of names. Some of these people Paul may not have ever, ever even met. But in, in, in some way, shape, or form, he had either heard of them, or if he had met them, he writes here, greet, greet, greet. And so there again, back in that Rome, back in that house in Corinth, Tertius and Paul writing, Ah yes, Tertius, remember this man. Oh yeah, and this one. This one, and you read all these things that Paul says, right? Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved. Ah oh, yes, says Paul to Tertius. I remember Rufus. Rufus. Oh, that's right, his mother. I mean, you can see Paul's wheels kind of turning in this, in this passage, can't you? Be sure to greet Rufus. And it says in the, in the text, a choice man, a select man, a eminent man in the Lord. And then it's as if, again, 
Paul's memory is flagged again and er, jogged. And, ah, yes, and his mother. And then it must come into Paul's mind. And again, I'm speculating a bit now, but in, in some way, shape, or form, Rufus's mother must have ministered to Paul in his time of need. And Paul remembers that. And what does he say? Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And that's the text of the sermon, right? His mother and mine. Now, Rufus's mother was not Paul's mother. Rufus was not Paul's brother. But the mother of Rufus must have performed some act of kindness to Paul that he could not forget. And it comes to his mind as he's working through these names. And isn't it touching, congregation? And I got to tell you, I was... I never knew this text was here. read the Bible a lot. But as I was thinking this week of, of, a, of a text uh, to, to preach on Mother's Day, there this text came up. And I was deeply touched by that. That Paul would say, greet the mother of Rufus. Oh, and she's my mother too. Not by blood, but by an act of kindness. And what that act of kindness was, we have no idea. But we know very well, congregation, that Paul was always in trouble. He was always facing hardship. He went from one hardship to the next. So it's not hard at all to believe that Rufus and his mother reached out to Paul and ministered to him in his time of need. What else do we know about Rufus? What else do we know about Rufus? Well, do you remember when Pastor Admiral preached a sermon here some time ago on Simon of Cyrene? Remember, Simon was the man who carried the cross of Jesus to the hill of Golgotha. And in Mark chapter 15, we read, very interesting. By the way, many scholars believe that Mark wrote his gospel for the church in Rome. Many reasons for believing that. But Mark says this. He's he's writing about Jesus on his way to Calvary. He says, They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. Simon of Cyrene. Uh, By the way, I'm in Mark 15 in verse 21. And in parentheses then, Mark throws in this extra comment. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus. And again, Mark's memory is jogged. And he says, ah, Simon of Cyrene. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, congregation, a little parenthetical remark like that, and yet loaded with meaning, and so beautiful for us when we reflect on Simon of Cyrene must have become a Christian. And Pastor Admiral Admiral said as much when he preached. Simon of Cyrene must have come to understand who Jesus was and what took place there on the cross of Calvary. And he came to put his trust in Christ. And he was married, and he had children, and however many children he had, we don't know, but at least these two, one named Alexander, and one named Rufus. Now, it's not certain that the Rufus in Romans 16 is the same as in Mark 15, but it's, it's, it's uh, very likely, it's very likely that this Rufus became a man uh, well-known to the church of those days. And Mark says, oh, Simon of Cyrene, Oh yeah, you people probably know Alexander and Rufus. Well, Simon is his dad. 
And again, that's probably the thought process of Mark in this chapter. So that when Paul in, in Romans 16 comes now to reflect on, on all these different people, and he thinks, ah, yes, in Rome there's that man, Rufus. Now I remember him, and I especially remember his mother and the act of kindness she performed to me in my time of need. And he says, Rufus's mother and mine. Oh, what a touching comment that is, congregation, from Paul. Well, finally, you can imagine then that the letter came to its end, right? Probably around verse 25, Tertius laid down his pen. In Romans 16, verse 24, he laid down his pen, his work was done, and Paul took up the pen. Now, Paul did not, it apparently did not have a very good writing skill, he had rather poor handwriting. Yet, Paul would often write the last verses to the letter. So likely from verse 25, 26, and 27 was written by the very hand of Paul. And then it was done. The piece of paper was picked up. The papyrus was rolled up, sealed, and it was given to Phoebe. Look at Romans 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Cancria, that you receive her in the Lord. Very likely then, the papyrus was rolled up, it was sealed, and it was given to Phoebe. And Phoebe now carried the letter across the Aegean Sea and brought it to Greece. And brought it, I'm sorry, brought it to uh, Italy and brought it to the city of Rome and to the church there. And Paul says, receive her. Isn't that striking, congregation, how this, this letter got its start, the greatest letter in the history of the church. Yeah, we could say so much more about that. It's almost a good thing, congregation, that that letter isn't in existence anymore because it would, be, would become almost a kind of relic, wouldn't it? We, would, we have so much respect for the, Paul's letter to, the, to Rome. And in God's providence, that letter is no longer with us except the copies of it that we have. And it's probably a good thing. At any rate, then, I would like to use that text in Romans 16 about Rufus to speak about mothers. We've already been touched, haven't we, by the kindness that this mother performed. And when we think about mothering, when we think about mothers, and especially what does the Scripture tell mothers to do? We never find in the Scripture a command for mothers to love their children or to love people. That's striking, isn't it? We read in our text, right, about a mother's love, even for Paul. And we can read, as I've given you there in Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Isaiah 49, verse 15, which was our call to worship today. Right? Can a woman forget her sucking child? Uh, 49, verse 15. Yes, here it is. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Again, the Bible assumes that a woman has love for her children. But there's no command. Women, mothers, be sure you love your children. And don't you think it's possible, congregation, that the reason for that is because it's so natural for a woman to love her children. It doesn't need to be commanded. For a woman not to love her children would be horrifying. 
There's no command in the Bible to breathe or to, to eat food, right? Because, of course, that's just assumed. And in the same way, a mother's love is something that comes so naturally to her. And as I studied this subject in the Bible, I realized that it's interesting what the Bible does command mothers to do. And I suspect, and again, I, I speculate a bit here, but I suspect that the reason is the Bible commands mothers to do things that perhaps don't come so naturally to them. So I turn to Proverbs 29, verse 15. And the word here is correction. Proverbs 29 and verse 15. Because here now we find something in the Proverbs about correction. And in 29, verse 15, we read, The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that it singles out mothers that will receive shame when they fail to bring this discipline to their children. And is it possible, congregation, and maybe I, I, I speak directly to the mothers this evening, that this is something that doesn't come so naturally to us, or, or to you as a mother. It's something that doesn't come naturally to think that hurting my child, causing them pain, is actually loving them, right? We know another proverb that says, uh, another proverb that says, he who withholds the rod hates his son. But that's not uh, intuitive, we might say, right? That we don't tend to think that way, that by disciplining my child in that way, I love them. And that by restraining myself and not disciplining them, I hate them. That isn't something that comes naturally, is it? This is something that is countercultural, certainly in our time, but I would say, congregation, it's countercultural even in our own mind, and maybe especially in the mind of a mother whose love is so tender and so kind towards her children that it can be very backwards and very contrary to the way you think to discipline your child. And congregation, I, I, I don't want you to miss the rod. That is a clear reference to corporal punishment, to physical punishment of using the rod of correction on a child. Now that doesn't come naturally for a mother. And I suspect, congregation, that this is why the Bible brings this out to us. And that there's no command in Scripture to love your children, but there is a command to correct them. And so we can receive that, mothers, as, as an instruction for us, that this is something that doesn't come naturally, that we have to be more intentional about it. Because it doesn't come as something that is in accord with our nature. And dear mothers, you know how important it is that children must learn to submit their will to their parents. We must train our children to obedience. And it, it, it is so important, congregation, and the, Bible, and the Bible teaches this, that we must be willing to correct them in a painful way, to bring them to that place where they submit their wills to their parents, where they learn to obey. Now, this doesn't mean 
uh, mothers that, we, that you need to assume a stern and harsh attitude towards your children. On the contrary, you should uh, have a cheerful and a pleasant, but also a firm. And you know, I, I find it so interesting the way God deals with us. And it says in Romans 11, verse 22, I won't turn there now, but it says in Romans 11, verse 22, Behold, both the goodness and the severity of God. And I find in those words, congregation, not just something that teaches us about God, it certainly does that, that was what it was intended for, but I find all of parenting, and especially I, I focus on the mothers this evening, wrapped up in that beautiful expression of how God treats his children. And in the first place, behold the goodness of God. And now twist the, to, to bring that to this day, mothers, your children should behold your goodness. And of course this applies to fathers as well, but tonight specifically for mothers. Behold your goodness. That means, congregation, that you have a relationship, a relationship with your children on a childlike level. That means getting down in the grass with them. That means wrestling with them if they're boys. Girls might have a different thing. You sit down at their, at their table for a tea party. Behold the goodness of God, but your children need to behold your goodness. They need to see that. But then also, and this is the part that doesn't come so easy, behold the severity of God. And that is back of that goodness, congregation, which your children see, is also severity. And that means very practically that mother has a will and she asks her children and she requires her children to obey. And mothers never give a command that you do not mean for your children to obey. Do you want to train your children to ignore you and to disregard your authority? Give them a command that you don't intend for them to obey. That means every command that you give you require obedience to it. And again, in a cheerful and in a happy way. But your children will quickly learn that back of that goodness, there's severity. And I don't mean yelling, carrying on, and chasing your children around. But I do mean, congregation, that there is a rod there. Sometimes a rod of, uh, in, in symbolic of a, of a discipline of some kind, it may be to sit on a stairs or to sit in a chair or to be in a timeout, but also a physical rod. And I emphasize that because it's so countercultural in our day to spank your children. But congregation, the Bible explicitly commands it. And I know that all the governments and all the psychiatric associations and the child psychologists are against it. But congregation, the Bible says that he who spares the rod hates his children. Now, my job here is not to teach you how to be a parent, but to teach you the Word of God. And the Word of God says that. And that means we need to use that also, that form of punishment. It's a hundred times more efficient to use the rod of correction on a child than other forms of discipline. And sometimes, congregation, uh, it almost amuses me to see parents and teachers trying to reason with young children. Now, I understand that you can give your children reasons, 
But children at that age are not going to understand reasons. And that's why the Bible teaches them that sometimes it comes in the form of a painful correction. And I hope that that would be rare, but it must be present. And congregation, do your children, mothers, are your children able to see both your goodness and your severity? If all your children see is your severity, that will be a problem. But I kind of doubt that's the issue. With most mothers, the temptation is that it's all goodness. And that we tend to, we tend to dismiss our children. We tend to push them away. We see the need for correction, but we're too busy. We just don't have time for it. Or it's such a disagreeable task. And I understand that, congregation. It is a disagreeable task. But the Bible is so clear about its necessity. I remember my mother used to tell me, she used to listen to Dr. Dobson on the radio. Dr. Dobson had a lot of common sense. And when we got to be teenagers, we liked to discuss parenting with with, uh, our mother. And she was a wise woman. And she said, I think she got this from Dr. Dobson, that parenting requires two things, rules and relationship. Rules and relationship. If it's only rules, your children rebel. If it's only relationship, your children will never submit to authority. And they'll never never learn to submit to authority, to anyone's authority. Rules and relationship. But I like the biblical better. Goodness and severity. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. And young families, uh, I include myself in that, we need to be open to receive the counsel of the gray-haired people in this congregation who've parented already who finished parenting. And sometimes their advice comes to us maybe a little abrasive. Maybe it kind of rubs us the wrong way. Well, we don't like anybody telling us about our children, right? But be big enough to receive that advice. Be big enough to receive that correction, that counsel. It's well-meant in most places, in most times. And even if it comes a bit abrasively, better to receive the wisdom of it than to reject it completely. I hope that we'll be open enough to do that. Well, I move on from correction. I spent a lot of time on that to passing on. Passing on. Because also mothers have this responsibility. And we find that in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. Passing on. That means, congregation, that God has called you specifically as mothers, and of course fathers too, but now today mothers, to pass on the faith that God has given to you. Just as your mother passed it on to you. And I ask you this evening, mothers, to think about your mother. To think about those times that your mother took your hands in hers. She taught you how to pray. Those times that your mother led you into church and sat you down into church. Sometimes you saw the severity of your mother, right? Because she took you out of church and whipped you in a a room because you weren't sitting still in church. We remember those times too, right? And that's precious as well, even though it wasn't very uh, exciting at the time. But still, we remember our mothers with great joy. And especially, 
and I think that most of us have had mothers like this, they taught us the gospel. They led us to the feet of Jesus. What a gift, congregation. What an amazing, precious gift that is. Well, this obligation also then, this calling from God, that you do for your children what your mother did for you. And that is to lead your children to the, to the Savior. You know what that means, dear mothers? That means also example. That means that your children need to see you on your knees. I remember that as a child, walking past my mom's bedroom, looking in there, and there I see her on her knees, praying. And sometimes I'd come back 5, 10, 15 minutes later, and she's still on her knees yet. That made a powerful impression upon me as a child. Do your children see you praying? And what about coming to church, congregation? Your children will just assume the same attitude that you had towards church attendance that you had. And if you can play fast and loose with church attendance, coming in the morning and skipping in the evening, or whatever it might be, the least little excuse means I couldn't make it to church tonight. Your children hear it. They see it. And they remember And that now becomes their default for whatever it is that we're talking about. Be it church attendance, be it prayer, be it Bible reading. Even if you never say a word, your children see and they understand. Every time my wife and I would go to my Heather's Grandma Roffel's house, there was that Bible laying on the couch. You know she'd been reading it just before we got there. It made an impression. I saw it. My children saw it. We knew that Grandma was a woman of the Word. That example is so critical. So critical. It's probably the key thing, humanly speaking. We know the grace of God needs to work too. But in terms of our own actions, that example is so powerful for passing on the faith to our children. I have to hasten on congregation. I want to speak to the children this evening. Because children, the Bible also expects you to honor your mother by obeying them. By obeying them. And we know that it says in Ephesians 6 verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I don't think I have to convince you of that, children, that it is right, that it's the right thing to do to obey your parents. But there's another reason, and especially I I bring this on Mother's Day, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10 and verse 1, and children, listen now, a foolish son or a foolish daughter is a grief to his mother. Did you get your mother a Mother's Day gift? Maybe you bought your mother some flowers. We were selling them out here yesterday. Maybe you got her a card. Maybe you gave her a hug this morning and said, Happy Mother's Day. But do you know that as lovely as your mom may experience that, it's such a grief to your mother when you disobey her and when you don't follow her, her directions and when you don't do the things that she asks you to do. And that's what it says in Proverbs, a foolish son is a grief to his mother. When you disobey children, you put tears in the eyes of your mother. Now that quite cancels out the gift that you may have given her. So pray to God that God would give you a submissive heart and mind to love your mother and to honor her by obeying her. 
That would put a smile on her face. The book of Proverbs has actually really dark things to say about disobedient children. Proverbs 20, verse 20 says, He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. Proverbs 30, verse 17, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Why such graphic pictures? Because the Bible takes it seriously, children, that you obey your mother. And that applies not just to the young children, but to the older ones. The older ones, sometimes you get pretty gifted at insulting your parents. I know sometimes you do it as part of a joke. All right, I get that. But don't do even that. It's too close to insulting your parent for real. And for, as it says in Proverbs here, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. And you don't ever want to get close to that line. And so children, love your parents and honor them by obeying them. I want to say something to adult children this evening as well. Adult children. Again, in the book of Proverbs 23, listen to your father who gave you life and don't despise your mother when she is old. There's so many beautiful examples of this in the Bible. Remember Solomon? When Bathsheba came to Solomon to talk to him about Adonijah, her son, and it says that Solomon had a chair put on his right hand, the place of honor, and he had his mother sit there. He honored his mother. What a beautiful picture. We have Paul in our text here, right, referring to the mother of Rufus. We have Jesus standing, or no, nailed to the cross, and in his pain and his anguish, he sees his mother, and he commits her to the care of the disciple John. Son, behold your mother, he said. And you know, congregation, when we think about as adult children honoring our elderly parents, it becomes us then to to see things from their perspective and to understand the the state that they are in where their their social uh, understanding, shall I say, may not be entirely what it once was. I can think of, uh, again, my, my wife's grandmother, uh, and I, I saw uh, her daughter was leading her out of a, we were at a wedding. It was a wedding reception. We were coming out of the wedding reception, coming out of the room, and Grandma Vanentorn was on, on, her, sister, on her daughter's arm, and, her, and her, sister, her daughter was leading her like this, and they came to a, the sidewalk and the ramp there, and there must have been maybe a little... A little edge. I mean, the, the big curb was, of course, that high, but the ramp right here had maybe a little tiny edge on it, a little curb, maybe that size. And I saw her come up to that, and she looked, and she shuffled her feet. And Now, we would be like, oh, Grandma, just step over it. I mean, please, it's only that high. But for her, it was a mountain, wasn't it? How do you honor your mother then in that situation to see it from her perspective? Not to get irritated, not to get frustrated, but to honor her by gently leading her over that curb. It was a beautiful example of adult children honoring their parents, no longer by obeying them, but by seeing things from their perspective and by respecting the fact that their minds may not be as sharp, especially uh, they make comments. I could still think of some of the comments my my elderly grandmother made to my mother 
And we, we kind of chuckled at them, which is the appropriate response, because if you took them seriously, you'd probably never speak to her again. Right? That's just how it is. But again, we understand. And you have to understand. And that's how you honor your parents. You cannot become irritated and frustrated with them at that age. So enough then to adult children. Husbands, husbands, honor your wife in her role as a mother. And may I go back to that, that, uh, what I said previously about correction. Because you know the correction is not something that comes naturally for a mother. And so husbands, this is a time then for you to step in. Because it comes more naturally for you than it does for her. And husbands, if there's discipline to be performed and you're in a position to do it, take that burden off your wife. Perform that burden for her. Now mothers do have to discipline their children. The husband's not going to be around all the time. We know that. But if there's a situation, there's the time for the husband to step up. God's given the husband generally, I know there's always exceptions, and, but generally, right, the husband has maybe a bit more, uh, a bit more severity, to go back to that, right? Goodness and severity, right? Interestingly enough, I know we're not talking to fathers tonight, but you know when the Bible says that women should correct their children, what does the Bible say to men, right? It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Because maybe that comes more naturally for us, right? To be a little too severe. So the Bible recognizes those things, doesn't it? But husbands, honor your wife's role as a mother by taking that burden off her when you can and being the disciplinarian for your children and give her times of rest. You know, in the few times that I've had to stay home with the children when my wife is away for some reason, and I had to stay home all day with the children. You know, the one thing that impressed me, and I'm sure you've, you've experienced this yourself, is the endless character of their needs. It never seems to quit. Why, just as soon as I thought I had them settled and, and went to do my, my other, whatever I was doing, something would come up, and it was just endless. And at the end of the day, at 5 o'clock when my day would normally end, your wife's work does not end. She still has the children hanging on her. They're still coming after her and asking her for this or for that. And now that's your role as a husband, right? To step in, to honor your wife's role as a mother by giving her those times of rest. And I think in some sense this even works out well because I know for myself, I, probably for you as well, that after a day of work, sometimes you're welcome. You haven't seen your children all day and it's, it's nice to come home and to play with the children. Well, there you go. You can take the children off and your wife can have a bit of a rest. Usually she has a meal to prepare already, right? And so she never gets a rest, right? And, and you can take the children and at least take that away from her. What a wonderful things to do. And may I say something about Sabbath? Because if the Sabbath is a day of rest for us, let's face it, men, it's rarely a Sabbath for our wife. Doesn't, she doesn't get a Sabbath. Unless you, as the head of the home, say, this is going to be a Sabbath for my wife as well. That means in some way, shape, or form to relieve her of some of those daily duties that she has to perform, be it with the children, be it with the, with the food preparation, the meal preparation, or whatever it may be, to give your wife a Sabbath. She's a mother, and it's taxing work, and it never seems to end. My, it doesn't even seem to end in the middle of the night, right? There's some child screaming, and she has to get up and tend to, to, to this child. Their work never seems to end. Well, you make sure that it ends. On, well, not that it ends, but that you give her a rest on the Sabbath day so that she can rest 
If in the Ten Commandments it says that so your, your ox and your donkey and the cattle in your barn may rest, then congregation certainly behooves us as men to make sure that our wives can rest on the Sabbath day. I press that upon you. Well, congregation, I come then to my last point here very quickly because we had a lot of duties, a lot of responsibilities tonight, a very demanding sermon, and we all see our failures, don't we? We all see how deficient we've been as mothers and as parents generally. Is there no gospel word for us tonight? Where do we take the guilt that we feel when we see how far short we've come of what God's called us to be as mothers and as parents generally? Well, I take you back to the text, congregation, because there's such a wonderful expression there, so beautiful about Rufus. says in chapter and verse 13, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. And when Paul uses the word Lord, he always means Jesus. In Christ. In the Lord. Dear mothers this evening, and fathers too, where do you go with all the failures all the deficiencies, all the sins, all the neglect, all the times that you failed to be the mother that you should have been or the father that you should have been. You can't dismiss it this evening. You can't try to downplay it. But you know where you can bring that? You can bring it to the foot of the cross again. You know, it's Mother's Day today, but first, it's the Lord's Day. Congregation, mothers, in the first place, it's the Lord's Day. And that means that the cross of Jesus Christ is set out before you. And you can take all your guilt, congregation, all the times you've failed, and you can lay it there. That's why I say don't try to dismiss it. Don't try to shirk it or to downplay it. It's probably worse than you actually even know. But you can just lay it there at the cross along with all our sins and all our failings. And at that cross, congregation, you can experience a full forgiveness. You can become like Rufus, a choice man. May I say it this evening? A choice mother in the Lord. Outside the Lord? Well, that goes back to last week. You're under the curse. But in the Lord, you can be a choice mother, a choice father, a choice Christian. This is where we always have to end, isn't it? At the cross of Christ. What a beautiful and happy place to be. And we can get up from that cross. We can leave the burden of our guilt there. And we can go forth to do the duties and the responsibilities that God calls us to do. And next week we can come back to this cross again. I think I gave this quote to you last week from Thomas Boston, Scottish theologian. He said the Christian life is the soul's constant traveling between the fullness that is in Christ and the emptiness I find in myself. Mothers, that's the life I call you to this morning. A daily traveling to Christ and the riches and the fullness in Him and the emptiness 
that we find in ourselves. And that's a happy life. May God bless you on this Mother's Day with these thoughts. Shall we pray? Almighty God and merciful Father, when we see the things that you've called us to do as parents and what you've called mothers to do as mothers in their home, then, Lord, we have to write over the best things that we've done, that we fail in every place, in the beginning, in the end, in the middle. And, Lord, we don't come this evening to claim that we've done so well, but to confess before you, Lord, all the times that we've failed. And we pray, O oh God, that you would forgive us graciously in the blood of Christ, so that we could be, Lord, like Rufus, a choice servant in the Lord, in Christ. Lord, will you bless the mothers who are gathered with us this evening? Or perhaps there are mothers here who are so very, very much aware of how far short they come. But I pray, O oh God, that you would both show them the forgiveness that is in Christ, but also the power that they can have in the Holy Spirit to go forth and to do this impossible task which you have called them to perform. Lord, I pray that it would have been a good and edifying evening for them this, this tonight, and that you would bless them as they go forward, and that you would be near to them, and that you would be their God and their guide, and that in all their labors, Lord, they would lean hard on the strong arm of the mighty God of Jacob. Lord, please hear our prayer as we ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.